This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and today is a continuation of our Beltway interview series, where Suara or myself talk to someone working in the field of politics, policy, media, journalism, about their fandom of Star Wars. And today we have for you a conversation with David Barnes, former guest of the show and a policy analyst for Generation Opportunity, and Al Downs of Americans for Prosperity. These are two guys who I used to work with, and we really bonded on our Star Wars fandom during our time working together. And they are just really funny and really, really smart, and I really am excited for you to hear their insights on Star Wars, politics, and everything in between. So without further ado, we'll cut right to that interview and enjoy. I am really, really pleased today to be talking to uh, two old friends and old colleagues, David Barnes and Al Downs. David from Generation Opportunity and Al Downs from Americans for Prosperity. Welcome to Beltway Panthers, guys. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. First time. Absolutely. No, David Barnes was on for uh, our democracy episode. I think it was episode four. It really helped helped get the show off the ground and give it some credibility. Which is weird because I have not. <laughs> and you know, by by episode four, there was no democracy. So that's a little ironic. <laughs> it's true. The Senate was dissolved. It all fell apart from there. Um, I really wanted to have you guys on the show because in the time that we worked together, uh, there were always great Star Wars conversations in the office. Uh, Al always takes it off the deep end, but that's exactly where we want it for this show. And so I want to start... Uh, with the deep end first and work our way back to the shallow because a couple <laughs> listeners have told us that we start too dry and the meaty stuff is always towards the end. So I just really want to kick it right off with, Al, you have some problems with intergalactic leftists uh, and the assassination of Mina Bontieri, the senator so. in the Clone Wars TV series. Uh, please walk me through your gripes about uh, the intergalactic left. All right. So <laughs> right up front, throw me under the bus. Uh, so the the episode that we were talking about is is heroes on both sides from the the Clone Wars animated series, and I, I think that it's it's either season three or four, uh, and it the the story arc is when they first introduce uh, Lux Bonter, who who is the character that matters later on, but his yeah. I, I believe it's his mother or his aunt. Yeah, it's his senator. It's his, it's his mother. Actually, now I'm not even sure if it's his mother or his aunt, but it is a matriarch in his family. Exactly, um, a relative. Yeah, and of it's, Lux. it's the it's the episode heroes on both sides when Padme and Ahsoka go to this separatist world to uh, uh, see some of their, their complaints that they have with the Republic firsthand. Right. And, you know, it, it's an interesting episode framing up sort of how, you know, the separatists are not all evil and it, it, it moves away from, like, the sort of New Hope and the original trilogy yeah. sort of black and white of, you know, there's clear evil on one side and clear good. And you get this interesting picture of the someone on the separatist side. But the point uh, that, that I was bringing up earlier that I think is, is a, a pretty ridiculous is the, the trigger that sends Padme to go try and talk to the Separatists is the Senate is considering a piece of legislation to deregulate the financial system. Uh, and the, the argument that, that's made in the Senate is 
the the war effort it needs uh, more loans from the banking clan, and in order to secure these funds, they need to deregulate the financial industry, which is the exact opposite of what actually happens during wartime. When a government needs to raise funds for a war, they're not going to deregulate the banks; they're going to nationalize the banks. They're going to do the opposite of of give you know give the private sector more opportunity to you know create economic growth. They're going to fully take over the industry. Do they ever sell war bonds? They do. They yeah, do. They, they, that was uh, that was unclear before, but in Star Wars Propaganda, the book they put out in October of last year, they actually walk us through how war bonds were used um, during awesome. during the Clone Wars. So that's been that's been pretty cool to have. And thinking about like in American history during World War II, the last time that there were significant war bonds being sold, it's not like those bonds were sold in some deregulated market, right? The federal government put enormous pressure on on the financial industry to fund World War II. Mm-hmm. So. I think that this is is part of the the intergalactic leftist conspiracy, <laughs> right? That we have we have this uh, the, this debate in the Senate over something that is completely unrelated to financing the war. Yeah, and, and on the last episode we did, it was it was the politics of Disney. And we talked a little bit about George Lucas um, and sort of his view of the world, and that the prequels really capture uh, the way that he sees. Uh, the role of big money in politics. Um, that's sort of the only commentary. Yeah, yeah, real, real subtle. Um, and and so then you have this storyline in the Clone Wars, which he was involved in, and it sort of seems to be a continua- continuation of the cartoonization of the way that banks and government uh, interact with each other. So with deregulation versus nationalization. Why is is why do you think George Lucas and the team behind the Clone Wars kind of go in that direction specifically instead of a nationalized approach where the government is co-opting the banks? Well, David, we were talking about this the other day, right? That the folks who wrote uh, who wrote Rogue One came out and said right. something to the same effect. But I I think it it just comes from a misunderstanding of politics and government from mm-hmm. from the folks who are writing these stories, right? Which is really unfortunate because you have this amazing rich universe and all these interesting storylines and no one who works on the show can spend, you know, the 25 minutes it would take to read the Wikipedia page about what happens to banks during wartime. Uh-huh. So so the 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 commentary I guess from the Lucasfilm side is that uh, money in politics has run rampant, and that basically they want special interests controlling the business of the government. And so they deregulate the banks so they can take out more loans. And you're saying they would just do the opposite. They would just take ownership. Yeah, I mean, I, I had trouble even following the logic of what you were trying to explain because the, the point that they make in, in this Bonterre story arc makes absolutely no sense. Uh-huh. There's no logic behind this. If you're going, if a government is trying to get money from an organization, the last thing that the government is going to do is say, all right, you have more power over your own property. They, they, they're going to, to it just it take ownership of the property immediately. They're going to pass regulations that say you cannot loan to, or you cannot lend to people that are not the government, or you cannot, uh, you know, any of these other financial instruments that you have don't meet the capital requirements or some bogus thing like that uh, to, to force the financial industry to, to back the government, which is not at all how it's it's portrayed uh, in the Clone Wars. Fascinating. I've never thought about it this way. We, uh, we've, we've sort of talked on this topic a little bit, and uh, I've never really gotten that point of view. So thank you so much, Al. I'm going to take the tinfoil hat off you, and I'm going to move it over to David. Yes. 
<laughs> David, I never uh, took it off. <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned bounty hunters getting a bad rep in Star Wars, and that bounty hunters and the profession should be praised, or more so, uh, more like shit, more light shed upon it. Uh, tell me why that is. Well, I mean, you're basically talking about like a private version of you know people through spontaneous order engaging in commercial activity that could be a thing that's done by the state, but in some cases, you know, private police can do things better. And so it's like, oh, there's this guy that the government with their vast resources can't find. Oh, some rando dude, like Dog the Bounty Hunter, <laughs> who is a crazy person, and I would not, you know, advocate anybody, like, you know, wanting to live that lifestyle or anything, and he seems to commit crimes all the time, so it's probably not a great example. He's just the most famous because that show. Um, but you have bounty hunters who are able to go do these kinds of things and actually find criminals who marshals can't find, um, filling a market need that people need, and they get paid for it. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I can think back to is the, the Django Fett game. Uh, it was the bounty hunter game on GameCube. PS2 or GameCube. I think I had it on GameCube. I still have it. Um, yeah, and, and you can navigate the seedy underworld because you know it, like you're part of it, and then you are fulfilling your contract to whomever. It could be a government contract or it could be a private contract. Um, I think you, you, you raised the issue of Dog the Bounty Hunter, and that just sort of makes me think of anarchy. Like, people maybe placing out bounties on people yep. who have not actually committed a crime, just a personal grievance. Totally. And um, if you had a separate medieval Scandinavia podcast, then we could talk all about medieval Iceland and the system they had where they had no formal laws from basically 970 till I think like 1263 when um, Norway took control over Iceland. But they're able to go about 300 years um, without having like formalized police systems. You just basically have a private property right to any violation against you. So there's a thing like, oh, you stole my $600, like I'm gonna get 600 from you. I could either take that directly or I could, you know, basically sell that claim to someone else, so if like you know, I'm a tiny skimpy man and I can't like attack this big bandit, I can just find an even bigger guy and be like, hey, Dingar, I'll, yeah. I'll I'll sell you my claim and then you can go you know, get it against him, uh -huh. and um and it like w was very successful in Iceland, like they had a very peaceful society considering you know like basically Vikings, um, <laughs> and if you look at a lot of the um, the sagas of the era um, in Iceland, the most famous one is Njal's saga, uh -huh. uh, and Njal is a lawyer. He is not like, you know, a warrior or a king or anyone like that. He's a lawyer who like goes, you know, town to town solving disputes. This this makes me think of uh, that's, that's the most Scandinavian <laughs> epic some thing of the, ever. Some of the criminal justice reform uh, commentary that I've heard thrown around is that like the real problem that we have in, in cities like New York is the the unsolved crime rate. Um, do you think that bounty hunters, uh, in the sense of Boba Fett, Dingar, all these other guys running the streets, would like help fill a void there so because the police are overburdened? The in investigating stuff is different. And that's kind of like, I, I, I don't know how you could have like an individual person. I mean, I guess private investigators are obviously a thing. Yeah. I don't know how well they like work with police mm -hmm. to like, you know, I, and now I'm trying to think of like all the movies and stuff about people who've like hired a PI to like find out the real killers or something and then give it over to the cops. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess like that could work, but that's also, you know, hey, police do your damn job better because we're paying you. But I, I love I love this. Al, 
jumping back into the Star Wars universe, the 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 role of investigator oh. could very easily be filled by droids. And going back to the Clone Wars, right uh-huh. when um, when the Jedi Temple is bombed, I think it's in the in the final season, and the the bombing that Ahsoka yeah. ends up getting framed for. Uh, the entire investigation team is droids, and they they, they, they yeah. figure out all of the all of the forensics, you know, within like a thirty second scene, which is you know probably not even time lapsed, right? Wow. <laughs> all all of those things could be done very easily, uh, you know, without any kind of like thought processes that you would need a, a living being to do. Right. So really, I guess the problem is that because government controls investigations they don't have the proper market incentives to have the right kind of innovation in new like forensics technology because I'm sure there's government employees who don't want their jobs being disrupted. Yeah, by... who's going to protect the jobs of the uh, of the clone right. troopers who are in charge of investigating this terror attack? And like, I guess clone troopers probably aren't unionized, but like in modern America, <laughs> I don't know, forensic technologists are unionized and they don't want their jobs getting displaced by robots. That are not like that robots, would be that like, would be pretty hilarious. You know, if the clone saving troopers devices. who have zero autonomy could actually unionize and and fight for their collective rights. That would be fantastic. I want to know a little bit about your background with Star Wars um, because clearly y'all are two huge fans. You live here in the D.C. area, working in politics, and and this is still big for you. You make these connections and you sort of think on this larger level of Star Wars where a lot of people don't. Um, so so starting with Alan, we'll go to David. You know, where did Star Wars begin for you, and, and kind of what was that first formative memory? Uh, so the the first memory of Star Wars that I ever have, I was probably eight or nine years old we had just moved to a new house and I discovered that we owned the box set VHS for the original trilogy and at that time I had never seen any of the movies I think my dad was a fan like when it came out but he, he's not that into it where he ever would have been like oh we're gonna watch these old movies together mm-hmm. uh, so when uh, when I discovered that box set I, I remember sitting down and watching the first one just because I thought that the cover art was cool on the box. And, like, I didn't even really understand what it was. But I ended up watching the first one and watching the second one and falling asleep watching the third one uh, because I just sat there and watched all three of them in a row. And it's, it's been been hooked ever since then. <laughs> that uh, I, Being a young kid, I, like, I couldn't get myself to get away from the TV to even fall asleep. I was so into it. And you stayed, you stayed pretty active. I mean, you've watched The Clone Wars intensively uh, and read, read a lot of books through, uh, through your teen years. Yeah, right? reread. You know, no need, to, no need to go into how many times I've watched The Clone Wars uh, or the movies. Or <laughs> I'm, I'm on my second viewing right now. I'm working my way through because there's still stuff I missed. I think I skipped episodes at one point, so every time I go through, I find new stuff. And I just, for the first time last month, saw the episode where, like, Yoda learns, learns how to do the life-after-death thing. Right. Uh, when Yoda, or when Qui-Gon spirit visits him and that's so crucial like that that means so much to understanding everything in the original movie is about how they actually do this and you know my my fiance has recently watched all of the movies with me and I have not yet convinced her to watch the cartoon but it's a hard sell it is a hard sell when you figure out how to do that let me know (laughs) But she she is of the mind that Anakin is a totally unlikable character. He's awful. And I I feel like once you watch the Clone Wars, you don't you no longer have that vision of him. And when you watch the movies later, it like the the whole story feels a lot more impactful. Like his fall to the dark side is not just like ah he was like that whiny teenager and that yeah. weird little kid and 
Uh, you're actually like, oh, this guy was you know likable and interesting and a compelling character. So even on the like interpersonal level, so much is explained in in the uh, in the TV series. Uh, in Rebels is sort of a side story too, but there's you know there's interesting stuff about the Force and the universe that's explained in that show too. Yeah, I always loved Anakin because I was a whiny teenager, so <laughs> I always identified with him very closely. Did you you had a rat tail back then. Uh, I had <laughs> I had Anakin hair. Um, by that I mean Episode Three. I uh, I like. I, I think I told my friends I wore dark clothes and all that stuff because of the bands I was listening to, but really I was like, it makes me feel like Anakin. <laughs> <laughs> David, what about Star Wars for you, man? When did it start? I can't really pinpoint like kind of when I first learned about Star Wars. I do distinctly remember when Episode One came out because I was a junior in high school, mm. and I remember that one of my friends I was very jealous had a ticket for like the opening opening night show, um, which were like very hard to come by and crazy expensive. I don't even want to think about how old you guys were when episode one came out. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Ten. <laughs> Okay. Are you really the one to answer? I think I was six. So yeah, like I, I very. Oh, and I remember when they did the like you know extent or the, not the extended edition, but like the special edition of the original series, mm-hmm. and they you know had that go out, and I actually like, thought it was cool. The re-release. Yeah, the re-release, which they did leading up to that. Yeah. When Greedo shoots first. Right. When Greedo shoots first, and like. You know, not really being old enough to really kind of like get all that stuff, and just was like, "Wow, this is Star Wars in the movie theater. This is a thing that I never thought would ever happen." And then it was like, "Oh wait, now we're releasing new movies," and it's just like, "Oh, so much crazy cool stuff." Speaking of uh, Greedo shooting first, uh, what do you think about that change? Does it get you fired up as it does most of the internet? Because the only argument that I've seen uh, for changing it from libertarians is that now Han is within the non-aggression principle, and he, uh, he responds to aggression with aggression instead of being the one to, uh, <laughs> to start, start the fight. That's aggression principle is garbage. <laughs> uh, and I think it's, you know, like he's a badass, and he is, you know, not necessarily a great guy. And I'd, I wouldn't, would, I'd, I definitely agree with that point, that at, when Han shoots first, that sets up his character in an important light yeah. versus having him respond to the first shot. But I don't think that it necessarily violates the, the libertarian non-aggression principle, because Greedo is sitting there basically saying, like, I'm going to take you to Jabba <laughs> to be murdered. <laughs> right. So, you know, if someone, like, non-aggression principle Over doesn't... Over my dead body. Right. It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it right. doesn't necessarily say that it has to be, like, equal force. If someone threatens your life, you're justified in protecting yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. What is y'all's favorite moment in Star Wars? Favorite scene? A thing that you always enjoy seeing when you watch the movies? I saw a meme that came out maybe a year or so ago. Are you referencing a meme for this question? For all I know, I sent to you guys. But it was kind of funny. It was like the, it was the amazing scene at the end of um, Empire Strikes Back, where you know uh, Darth Vader is like looming over uh, Luke Skywalker, having like just cut off his hand. Yeah. And it was, it was basically kind of a play on the whole, like, I am your father thing. And he's like, imagine if he was, like, actually explaining all the backstory of who it was. And it kind of ends with, like, and I nailed your mom. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like, wow. This is, like, so impossibly insane. I cannot possibly believe it. Um, but like, that, that plays into, like, the whole idea of machete theory. Like, what you're, how, yes. how you're supposed to start episode two or something. Yes. Like, 
during that which scene. I which I w- think is a good idea, and I haven't done it, and um, I don't have children yet. But when I do, I'm going to do that with them because what's the point of having children if it's not to do experiments on? Correct. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I I do I do buy into that. And when you ask about you know fan theories that yeah. we had, that was not really a fan theory, but I think that's something I'd like I'd be interested in exploring. So David, his his answer is memes. <laughs> <laughs> I no, saw this. It's, it's not so much memes. It's I, I mean I, I guess to go back like I think that is you know one of my favorite Star uh-huh. Wars moments where it's just like you know so cool and surprising and just like this amazing twist. I'd say another one that just sticks with me is um, in Episode Three in the like opera house type the like bizarro opera house scene um, when Palpatine just sort of turns and then says in his awesome evil voice. Not from a Jedi. Yeah. Oh no! I was cool. I was guesting on a different podcast last night, and they asked me about my favorite scene, and I I said it it was it was that scene, the uh, pathway to the dark side, or the dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities, some considered to be unnatural. Now, what what about you, man? So I'm gonna give you two. I think the the one that I like the most from like a little kid, like this is so awesome perspective, is when uh, in in episode. In Return of the Jedi, episode six, when they are escaping from Jabba's pleasure skiff, like from from the point where Luke is on the platform about to be thrown into Zarnak, and he's like, "This is your last chance, Jabba," and then that whole scene is just awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. With it, when the totally. the one funny exception there is like the the mistake in the audio mm-hmm. where Han Solo says Boba Fett where twice in a row Boba Fett. Yeah, and it's it's clearly the same audio just replaced <laughs> over and over. Uh, and so I, and that's a small part of that scene, but I love that whole scene. And then in episode three, what it gets me every single time when Anakin is like, you know, cuts off Mace Windu's hand, and that that whole series. Every oh. single time I see it, every single time I see it, I'm like, he doesn't have to do this. None of this needs to happen, <laughs> <laughs> and and it always happens. <laughs> What have I done? <laughs> it's not pod racing. Oh, that's yeah. That's that's a close third. I have a, I have a question because you you mentioned Return of the Jedi and and the uh, the pleasure skiff and there's one part that I never understood it was what was the plan? What were they trying to do? Was it always to get to the execution uh, and get out to the uh, to the Sarlacc? Because that wouldn't make any sense. Luke tries to pull a gun on Jabba. He force pulls a gun from some guy's thing, and then he just immediately gets grabbed by the hand. And I, I've started to wonder now, every time I watch it, because Return of the Jedi is my favorite movie, so I watch it a lot more. What was the plan here? What was he going There's to do? No plan. It's just badassery. It's basically <laughs> just like, you know, I so it's just spontaneous order. I don't think yeah, it had any. It's just like plan. I am a Jedi. I can do anything I want. I'm basically God. So like yeah, I'll just roll in there and just be awesome and it'll work out. So you think that but, that kind of plays into the the what people often say is that in the beginning of that movie he seemed to be flirting with the dark side a yep. little bit with you know choking the Gamorrean and his just incredibly arrogant approach yeah. to this situation. Which is why the Machete Order works so well because I mean the idea is basically like cut out episode one total garbage you know watch episode sorry <laughs> he just mouth I'll kill you by the way for for listeners. Um, 
because it's just bad. And you start with, you know, four and five, get like traditional Star Wars opening, and then you end with this big, like, whoa, he's revealed, like Darth Vader's his father. And then you go back, and then you see the original, or sorry, the prequel trilogy, and then you end with like Anakin turning, and then you get right into, you know, Luke, crazy, arrogant, wearing all black, goes in and just like mauls Jabba the Hutt for. I don't want to say, like, no reason, because he's, like, kind of a bad guy, but it's like, well, you, you know, my friend owed you a lot of money, and you decided to collect on that debt, and because he's my friend, you shouldn't have been doing that, so now I'm going to kill you and everyone you know. Um, Yeah, like, and that, I think, is a lot more punch, because unless you have that context, then you don't really have the same kind of, like, fear of, like, whoa, maybe Luke's going to turn bad. Because it's otherwise just like, he's a good, cool guy. And, you know, he's just being cool again. I never thought about it like that. I'm not, I'm not a fan of Machete Order just because I'm protective of Qui-Gon Jinn as a character. And I feel like that movie balanced special effects and traditional, like, very, very well. Um, there are all these weird problems in that movie. But in terms of a well-acted prequel, I feel like that was, like, the best-acted prequel, the best special use of special effects. And I just love Qui-Gon so much. So... When, you know, 17-year-old me watched um, Phantom Menace, like, live in the theater for the first time, I remember loving it as I, like, walked out of there. I'm like, wow, this is so cool, this is awesome, like, the the Darth Maul fight at the end is so great, and, like... I mean, it was, it was like 1997. There wasn't really an internet. I have tracked public opinion with like right down when the social media started with that movie. Group think. Yeah. Group think, man. Well, I think it's just, you know, when you kind of think about it and you get, I mean, you, you lose the kind of initial emotional high where it's yeah. like Star Wars. Yeah. Like I hadn't realized I'd been Jones in for 10 years for a fix, but like I really was and I needed this. Um, and then it's like, wait a minute, it kind of like doesn't really make a ton of sense. Like, yeah. why are they all so weird? Like, why can Jedi like jump 50 feet? Yeah. Like, you know, how did, like, how does Darth Vader, like, like, did he lose all his abilities? I guess he became a robot, so maybe that's why he's like yeah. stiff and wooden, but like. Yeah, they, they, they led with way too much. Like, they, they made the Jedi too powerful right off the bat, and it kind of made you question, like, Man, Luke kind of sucks. Like he yeah. can't, he can't do any of this stuff. He does maybe one force jump, like a flip in the battle, uh, episode six of the end. Yeah. He like flips up yeah. and like that's the first time he uses anything. But they use force run, force jump. Oh, we're doing yeah. all this crazy stuff. And you look at like Yoda. I mean, like that sweet fight with Yoda and Count Dooku. That's like super awesome. And I remember like you like that fight. Uh, I mean, it's a little goofy, <laughs> but I mean, just kind of watch it. It's like, oh, yeah. that's cool. Like, this yeah. is, you know, really good, you know, bad guy versus really good, good guy. And they go at it. And Yoda's just like zipping all around and doing the stuff. And they're throwing stuff at each other. And yeah. And I mean, despite if you think that that's silly, <laughs> it does a lot to explain like how Yoda is a powerful Jedi. Because he's yeah. tiny. And I'm sure everyone, when they first saw it, they're like, I'm not really sure that I buy this guy as anything yeah. other than a monk. Exactly what Luke how does. He would, yeah. yeah. And the, yeah, you see, you see like how he would fight. Right. 
I want to ask you all about libertarians and Star Wars. Um, I, since I've been in D.C. and doing this whole thing, I, I've sort of seen that it is incredibly pervasive uh, mm -hmm. in, in that culture. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, last week I interviewed Andrew Heaton uh, from Reason about this same thing. And I wanted to get y'all's input on whether or not Star Wars leads people towards libertarianism or whether or not libertarians then just identify with Star Wars after the fact for a couple of reasons that they find in the movies. I'm not going to say it has anything to do with the movies. It just has to do with demographics. Uh -huh. that that libertarians and Star Wars fans skew heavily male and nerdy. Uh -huh. And so that would probably explain most of the correlation. I think you might be onto something yeah. there. Both sides are, uh, I guess, in the early 2000s, more likely to wear a fedora. Star Wars fan, libertarian. <laughs> Makes sense. Yes. I had a fedora. I just want y'all to know that. I have I've never had a fedora, but I <laughs> mean, neither. I think beyond just like the obvious demographic facts that, that David mentioned, um, I think that the the universe is so like rich and very clearly designed to have political overtones mm -hmm. that you know pretty much any political ideology can probably put themselves in it, uh, and maybe you know the fact that the the main the main heroes are kind of shirking these failing institutions, right? That like the the. By the end of the Jedi Order, it's kind of bureaucratic and corrupt, and the Senate is corrupt, and uh, clearly the Separatist Senate is corrupt, and the Empire is corrupt, and, like, and all, the banking system. Right. I mean, all of these institutions are, uh, you know, weighed down by bureaucracy, and that's sort of why life is nasty, brutish, and short for most of the the galaxy. Mm -hmm. That is sort of that's like a very clear illustration of why libertarians support. You know, limited government, but also like limited yeah. corporate power and just the yeah, local control. Yeah, this is control. this is an area where I feel like uh, Star Wars fans and people who analyze it from a political uh, point of view sort of are talking past each other with the prequels. Is you have this incredibly corporatist government, and so people look at it and they go, "Okay, that's Congress. Like we have that exact same problem." And then folks on the right, and particularly with the libertarian strand, see like they're like, no, like that really is a problem, and that's the government's problem. Like if the government has its door open to corporations and special interests and all that, then like right there you have a big government problem, not a necessarily like a money and politics problem. If that makes any sense. And this is probably just the former congressional staffer in me, and I doubt anybody else cares about this. But there is no parliamentary procedure in the <laughs> Star Wars universe, and the people are just shouting at each other. That's <laughs> true. And there's like you know Very things true. are just randomly called up to a vote. There doesn't seem to be any committee process. So there's no checks on anything. Just the the chancellor has his one advisor who it's not even clear if he's an elected official. And I just, thought you wanted spontaneous order in government. <laughs> no, not, 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 when you have a powerful institution, yeah. there needs yeah. to be accountability. I would rather there not be powerful institutions like the Galactic Senate or the chancellorship or you know. The, right. A, as powerful as the federal government is now, but when they exist, there need to be there need to be clear rules so people can ensure that you know it's not just decisions are not made on the whim of whoever's in yeah, power. Yeah, like my little viewing of the Clone Wars is always you know like oh so and so is a powerful or influential senator, but like what do they do? Or they, they have a committee chair? Like yeah. are, they, are they from a key jurisdiction that has a lot of swing voters? Like what's going on? Yeah, just unclear how people get to the Senate. Like you know, like who's been voting for them and why they get put there. And I think the one thing that I've tried that I've found out is that a lot of senators are appointees. Uh, yeah. I think elections happen on planets for like the monarchs, 
um, and some of like the governors on planets, but then they are appointed senators that go off, and then they basically just become corporate shills once they're there. So there, there is no Seventeenth Amendment. Yeah, I was gonna say that's kind of what it sounds like. Or, or like, and you're referencing what? What is the Seventeenth Amendment? For direct election of senators. Okay. So, so yeah, in in the U.S., senators used to be appointed by directly elected legislatures. Because uh, the Congress guarantees that every state has a Republican form of government, but doesn't, and it actually explicitly said or when it was originally written that senators would be appointed by by these elected officials uh, right. in each state. Right. But that was changed by the 17th. So why the House was directly elected and the Senate was was not. But it seems kind of more like a UN kind of thing, where like United Nations is just oh yeah, each each world or whatever is sovereign, and then they just send their person to be the delegate. But that. That's just a crazy mechanism to do it because the world government seemed to have so little power compared to the Galactic Senate. And it also is very unclear how many members or if there's a bicameral system because at one point Naboo has Senator Amidala and also Representative Jar Jar Binks. And it's unclear if they are serving in the same body, if they have two senators, or if it's because yeah. the, the planet has two He's a junior peoples. junior representative from Naboo. Um, right. Like, he has, like, a lower standing than Padme does, so you have, like, a seniority thing going on with, with senators from the same world. Uh, it, it is very unclear. Yeah, like, do they just get the one vote? Like... Do they each vote? Like, how does that work? And yeah, does, I, does every planet have multiple representatives, or is it just because there are two two species living on Naboo that they get two? Yeah. Interesting. These Both are all of these are, plausible. I mean, these are all things that need to be hashed out. That's that's <laughs> why I, I get a little frustrated with with the politics of the prequels. Just in that, I feel like uh, the the galaxy there was built for a political message coming from the author right. rather than to build politics of the galaxy. And, and I feel like everything's been done after the fact to try to make it clear. And that, that goes back to the the, the uh, story from the Clone Wars we were talking about at the very beginning of the, this conversation, uh, that they wanted to make this political message that, like, oh, it's evil to, to you know reduce regulations on private industry. Mm -hmm. Let's make up a political story that fits that rather yeah. than thinking, like, what would actually happen in this world? Uh, and that, I think a similar thing happens, and it, it, the story suffers because of it, right? You have these, like, logical gaps, and motivation is unclear in the story. And that happens in Episode 3, too. Like, the, 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 when uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin, right before they have their last fight, uh, there's the, be the beginning part of their dialogue makes sense, and then it just sort of goes off this cliff where Anakin inexplicably says, like, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy, you know, and he... Yeah. In a direct paraphrase of George Bush. Which is, and I, the only reason that that was included was to try to bash Absolutely. Bush, which, yeah. you know, whatever, it's, if he doesn't like George Bush, that's fine, but it seemed like a, a, a bad for the fans that that got put in there. Because <laughs> right. in, in the, the conversation he's having right before he chokes out Padme, he says, I did this for the Republic. And then not even two minutes later, he's talking to Obi-Wan about his empire. And it's just to get to this... Right. point where he's making this political argument and it doesn't really fit and it, it ruins that entire scene. Yeah, there, there are two things going on there. One, I just can't stand the delivery of the line because he's like, yeah. you are my enemy and it's like this <laughs> really heavy E and I'm like, ugh, can someone please make him do another take of that? Right. Uh, and, then, and then the only explanation that I've seen out there and again, it's because they're always doing cleanup with a lot of the mm -hmm. prequels is uh, that you know he's he's drunk on the dark side. The dark side gives you delusions of grandeur. Like so, you're kind of like off in one area in one second, then you're yeah. off in like the me world in the next. Yeah, but also like I mean, the very next line is like only a Sith deals in absolutes. I'm like, yeah. really? Is that true? Yeah. Like the Jedi seem pretty absolutist to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's an incredible amount of hypocrisy going on there. With um, the structure of the government, I wanted to ask you guys about uh, democracy. David, you mm -hmm. were a guest on our episode about uh, democratic systems and how they decline. Mm -hmm. And in Star Wars, Palpatine has an incredibly meteoric rise, uh, mostly born out of fear in the right. galaxy and people looking for a strong leader. Um, we have a problem in this country right now where support for democracy is generally going downhill, particularly among people under 30. Uh, millennials are not fond of democracy uh, as it is known to them. Um, I think that has uh, a lot to do with a bunch of different factors which we can talk about. But I wanted to ask you guys, how do you think um, the United States of America can find themselves in a compromised situation with that kind of strong leader uh, in the context of Star Wars? And what do you think we need to do in this country to restore faith in democracy with young people? Because I know both y'all work on this issue uh, with millennials. Well, unless touching that weird orb gave the president magical powers, I think that part of the Star Wars threat is not going to be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that makes you Jedi. I'm not really sure. Uh, I was on vacation when the whole orb touching thing happened, so I'm uh, not really sure what happened and don't missed, really want to know. You missed out. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, obviously one big piece of it is just, you know, basing a process on outcomes. And they see that democracy led to bad outcomes, therefore the process that led to those bad outcomes must be bad. Mm -hmm. And once democracy leads to good outcomes, a lot of those people will be like, oh, yeah, democracy is great. Yeah, you're talking about young Americans right now. Young Americans. Yeah. I mean, just literally everyone. Literally everyone. But, but yeah. I think I think that's that's got to be part of it. Like, if you are frustrated with with a decision making process that led to a decision you don't like, you will attack the process. That's just what people do. Um, I think more broadly, it is like um, I was actually reading the introduction to an essay, which I stopped reading the, from the Claremont Review of Books by Yuval Levin. Um, who's reviewing a couple of recent books of, uh, against democracy, basically, like, trying to evaluate, like, because people don't have good political knowledge, like, they just don't understand, you know, like, insert any number of funny facts, like, people can't name the folks in the Supreme Court, people don't understand, like, what representative government is, people are not educated on basic facts, so, like, why is it that they get to make decisions as opposed to, like, people who do understand what we're talking about, let alone have, like, sophisticated, you know, economic theories or understand the world, but just, like, know that Judge Judy is not on the Supreme Court. Sure. That kind of stuff. Like, if you think Judge Judy is on the Supreme Court, you can't vote. Should that be a thing? I don't know. Do I think we'd have better decisions if we did that? Again, I, I don't really know. Um, because I kind of think a lot of the mistakes cancel each other out mm -hmm. and then you get into a really complex like public choice economics stuff where like what are the incentives for government actors to do what they're doing and that's not really like a problem with democracy that's just like every system has incentives and sometimes those incentives become misaligned. Yeah, I think there's there's a sense in which people associate democracy just with the act of voting. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's a line between representative democracy and direct democracy. Right. And I would make the argument that in the last hundred years as direct democracy has grown, we've become unhappier with the process and the more representative we can make it, I think we're typically happier. And that goes down to primaries, the way the parties are run. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say presidential elections because I think it's important for people to feel like they cast a vote for the uh, for the uh, the executive, um, but direct democracy in a lot of ways ends up making people very unhappy uh, because the outcomes are so extreme. Yeah, yeah. removing direct direct election of senators would be one way to do that. 
to have people, I think, because I think people right now don't really care, and they're, the state races aren't as competitive. Mm-hmm. Like, the number of people who could name their state rep or state senator is probably pretty low. Or even their U.S. senator, yeah. their U.S. representative. Yeah, but, like, that that's a kind of thing that if those people determine senators, then there'd be big special interests that would be taking a lot more interest in that, and then I think those races would become a lot more competitive because they'd be a lot more high stakes. And I think generally, like, having more competition... Um, in government is more important is, is in, in politics is important I think it, it's weird to say we there's way too little money in politics than there is but given the stakes of the decisions that are being made there should be like orders of magnitude more money spent on elections like if you could spend you know $800,000 and get elected to the house like that's crazy it should be more like 8 million or 80 million given well, given the magnitude of decisions these guys are making individual members of the house really don't have that much power though so, yeah, but if you bought a hundred of them, <laughs> if you bought a hundred, so of them. eight eight million dollars to get less than half of the votes you would need to pass any piece of legislation. Yeah, but on the margin, I mean, just kind of. I mean, maybe Senate races are a little different, but I mean, I, I'm I'm just kind of thinking of like the you know the the budget that President Trump just proposed is four trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. That's a ton of money, and if you can. Be if being a house member meant you could influence one percent of that. Let's say let's say you know like one thousandth of that. That's still four billion dollars. That's a lot of money, and if those elections are going for less than a million dollars, that seems like those should have a lot more activity from like you know both sides. I'm not saying like anyone should do it, but like if you just kind of think through the you know orders of magnitude the different spending levels it just surprises me how small they are it kind of so, reminds me of one conversation i was having um with uh with one of our guests seth maskett a political scientist and he uh he was talking about the lack of uh, party structure in star wars and this really only becomes clear after return of the jedi when they mm-hmm. found the new republic there seems to be more clear two-party system um, and that the republic actually lacked from politics like it didn't seem to actually have two sides who are fighting against Mm -hmm. each other very clearly and standing in each other's way. And what you were missing in Palpatine's era was an opposition party who could actually throw their bodies on the tracks and stop what was going on. You had the delegation of 3,000 that was led by Padme, but it was it was a symbolic thing. They weren't a party. Um, and maybe the only thing that we could save to our credit is that how on earth could Trump become a dictator uh, in this sort of political climate where he, he can't get people to support him yeah. because of polit- I mean, politics? Like, that might be our safeguard sometimes from strong men. Yeah, I mean, I think the like dictator stuff is is dumb, but like, I mean, no one, no one in America is going to be a dictator because it's just there's just way too many obstacles in the place. But I think the party thing is great. Like Padme seems to be primarily appealing to people's good nature mm-hmm. as opposed to giving them earmarks. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you know that's a powerful motivator. And kind of to to that point about the at least the the structure of the Galactic Senate, there are so many more delegates there than there are in any. Anybody, uh, right, in the United States, right? I guess I mean I think the new the New Hampshire is the biggest is thing. the biggest, and they have five hundred or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Constitution says there should be one representative for each twenty five thousand uh, people, and right, and they that just hasn't been followed forever, right? Because these members want to have more power. Uh, if the House of Representatives actually followed those instructions, you would have 
so many more members of Congress with with a much more direct connection to the people that they actually represent mm. and way less power, uh, which is kind of going in the opposite direction that y'all were just talking about. You would have you know less money spent on politics, mm. but you would have representatives that actually were able to meet everyone that they represented, uh, and I think that that would that would get rid of some of the the party politics that I, I would argue is a bad thing. Uh, for democracy, because it, it presents issues as just one or the other, which is very rarely the case. There, I mean, there really is no issue short of like maybe war, right? War, you can either go to war or you can not go to war. But almost every other right. kind of major issue that, that a government is going to consider, there are a whole bunch of other options. Well, but I mean, there's plenty of party systems that have multiple parties. It's not like you need to have a binary thing, which you would only have if you're like a presidential contest system with a first past the post system, yeah. where like, you know, it's either you win or you lose. There is no like third points for third place, as opposed to like the British election we just saw last night, um, where you know there's I don't know like five or six parties that and they're running. regional parties yeah. too, which yeah. is, and that's not even that big of a country. If you took that kind of kind of approach uh, in the United States, there would be it, you know it wouldn't just be like oh the Libertarian Party and the Green Party uh-huh. are now on the ballot. It would be you know dozens and dozens of parties, and some of them would only you know be in a handful of states, mm-hmm. uh, and you would get a much much more. Uh, diverse, di- more diversity of opinion in the in the public sphere. Not that members of Congress right now actually perfectly fall into the two party platforms, but there's no incentive for them to talk outside of those uh, mm-hmm. those sort of lanes because they lose support from their party. Uh, it makes it harder for them to get reelected, and uh, they there's really no means to represent. I mean, in California, each of them have like 900,000 people. The one person in Montana has 1.2 million constituents. That's absurd. No one person can actually represent that many people. If if all that any of these members did was walk around door-to-door in their district and say, I want to meet everyone here so I know it's important to you, they couldn't do that in two years. If they did that every single day, there's no way that they could do that, which which hurts, I think, the... the uh, like viability of democracy and the way people view it mm-hmm. that you know DC is so disconnected I really wish we could talk, keep talking about this, but we are bumping up against time. You can um, come back next week. <laughs> Any time, man. Um, talking today with David Barnes of Generation Opportunity Now, Downs of Americans for Prosperity. Um, wanted to finish up by asking you guys, what are you excited about the future of Star Wars? We've got a Star Wars movie every year on the way. Uh, Han Solo and The Last, Jet, Last Jedi up next. Uh, what's got you hyped about the future of Star Wars? Um... I was not, I mean, I really liked uh, Force Awakens, really liked Rogue One. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm excited just about, like, the fact of Rogue One that they're doing these, like, non-major movies mm-hmm. that it's like, oh, let's pick a facet of this story and then, like, tell it, as opposed to have things that are all kind of sequential, you know, like, kind of off-running offsets. So, like, with those, the Han Solo movie, they're doing, like, kind of one-offs. I think that's really exciting. So I'm I'm very stoked about the future of Star Wars because if things don't work, they can just you know try new things. Yeah, Al, what about you? Um, this is not very original, but I obviously want to know what the hell's going on with Rey, where she's from, anything about yeah. her background. I think that's what probably Rey. everyone is most excited about for episode uh, episode eight coming out. Um, I'm on on the one-off movies. We were talking about this before before we started recording. I'm holding out for a Cad Bane movie. I don't know if it's gonna happen. They did bring Saw Gerrera into the into yeah. the the movie uh-huh. uh, into the movie, so it's possible we might see him. And he's by far the most badass bounty hunter. I could see a Boba Fett or even a Jango Fett movie being a big fan favorite. In the way that you know a Han Solo movie 
You know, even people who are not that into Star Wars will probably be inclined to see it. I want a Django Fett movie actually over a Boba Fett movie, mo- mostly because I want more older public. Yeah. Uh, and also, Boba Fett, even though we know like the kid that was under the mask, like I don't want to know. I don't want to know anything under the mask about him by the future, just to maintain his, uh, his sort of anonymity and his, his his sense of secret and mystery. Um, that would be that would be really cool. And you, I mean, you do get a lot of background on Boba Fett through the Clone Wars and Rebels too, where they they kind of give a, a more of a picture of what he. Are you up to date on Rebels? Um, partly through four right now. You've gotten a part with the Bendu in Rebels. Yes. Do you think that there is a point to the Bendu? Do you think that this is going to come into Star Wars uh, film later at some point? He's like the neutral Uh, Jedi. Yeah, this is a giant creature in the woods uh, who is immensely powerful in the Force, and his slogan that he says to everyone is like, I'm the one in the middle. Um, Uh it, It seems to me that they've introduced... This middle thing, centrist Jedi. Yeah, and, but you know he's he's not a he's, he's not, not a Jedi. He, well, yeah, but he's not he's a he's a giant creature who he literally sleeps all day and like you can like walk up to him like like the giant sand cat in Aladdin and like summon him or something. You know, he's not a he's not an actor in the world stage. No. Um, he's like this thing that they just go to for advice, but he doesn't much care for either side, the dark side, the light side. He'll attack either one if they cross him. Um, well, you know that's. That's a trope used in a lot of the like chosen one type stories, yeah. right? Like another cartoon series, The Lion Turtles and Avatar: The Last Airbender, uh-huh. is the same kind of thing. Where it, I just one I, I have to wonder why they made this thing in Star Wars Rebels and canonized it if they weren't going to use it at some point um, for something bigger that's in the movies. My 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 fan theory that I'm clinging to right now is that we're going to see in Star Wars Episode Eight or Nine. Uh, people who have followed the ways of the Bendu, like that the maybe Ezra and Kanan in Star Wars Rebels recorded and passed down some of their experiences or lessons learned from the Bendu creature, and that's how you get Church of the Force. That's how you get Lor Senteca. Um, that's how you get maybe like Luke not on the Jedi side anymore. That he's like found these texts or something and has moved in that direction. I truly think that's what's going to happen. Or maybe he just realized the Jedi were all jerks. And <laughs> that, I, I mean, maybe sitting on that island, he's got like all these dead Jedi coming to visit. And they're all like, man, here's how we screwed it up. <laughs> like, we were total morons. Turns out the president said it was his lord the whole time. We had no idea. Yeah. Don't do what we did. They failed. <laughs> yeah. Major failures. Uh, y'all, thank you so much for coming on Beltway Banthas, Al Downs, David Barnes. Real pleasure, and we'll, uh, we'll do it again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks. It's a great time. All right, and that brings us to the end of another episode of Beltway Banthas. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Al Downs of Americans for Prosperity and David Barnes of Generation Opportunity, two friends of the show, and we really do appreciate them coming on to, uh, to banter about Star Wars and politics with us this week. Quick request of all of you listeners out there, we would love if you would take an opportunity to rate us on iTunes, leave us a couple stars. It lets us know how we're doing and helps us get the show out to more people. Uh, Don't worry about leaving a review. Just drop those stars in uh, and that would make a huge difference for us. If you'd like to shoot us an email, you can get in touch with us at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Beltway Banthas and myself at Stephen underscore Kent. 
89. That's Stephen with a PH underscore Kent 89. And my co host, Suara, at Suara Sale One. That's S W R. <laughs> I can't spell. S W A R A S A L I H One. Uh, give us a follow on Twitter. We love to chat. And we will talk with you about Star Wars and politics anytime because that's what Beltway Banthas do. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Until then, may the Force be with you.